Hello and welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that sin has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm filmmaker and Welsh super soldier, Giles Goff, and sadly, Phil can't be with us today. He's currently scaling the south face of Machu Picchu. Instead, we have a very special co-host. Hi, I'm Julia Hall, librarian and xenomorph extermination specialist. And for the second episode in our superhero series, we'll be looking at Captain America, the first Avenger. We'll be looking at the crazy amount of Messiah parallels in this film and asking, can a Christian go to war? So, Julia, what did you think of this film? Well, the first Avenger is sort of quite a nostalgic film for me. Um, (laughs) It has... So uh, I was, let me... 13, 14 at most. Oh, God, you're an actual child. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> when this yeah. film came out and it sort of was the beginning of a, a series of life milestones kind of connected with the Marvel films. We'd go out and see the films in cinema. We'd discuss what the next one was going to be like. It mm-hmm. was a, a very kind of formative period. So the first Captain America film will always have a very special place in my heart. I think for a lot of people in my age at the time, when Steve kind of first emerges as uh, mm-hmm. as the super soldier Steve, that was a bit of a light bulb moment shall we say for for many people i think across across the the world <laughs> uh, including, yeah all of a sudden uh, you felt very strange and, and and uncomfortable Ooh. in your own skin not quite know, sure what to do with yourself that's adorable gosh i feel so old good lord yes, sorry um, sorry everyone nope, that is okay now <laughs> It is, it's hard to believe, but Captain America was not always such a bankable commodity in geekdom. Cap has been revered for being morally perfect by his contemporaries pretty much since he was first created. And before that film came out, we had a decade of anti-heroes like Blade or Wolverine and Batman on our screen. So it wasn't obvious how you'd make such a classic example of the all-American Boy Scout dramatically satisfying, you know? <laughs> So there had been attempts to bring him to the cinema in the past. Uh, now, whilst I saw and loved the 1990 version of Captain America, the one with the rubber ears on the side of the mask, oh yeah, even I couldn't say that that was anywhere close to a good film. So when Captain America and Thor, two of arguably some of the riskiest Marvel properties came out in 2011, I did find a, a breathe a big sigh of relief when they were actually quite good. We're so used to Marvel films and superhero films being a very bankable commodity now. They're very common. I think sometimes we forget that they had quite humble beginnings. Yeah. Now, in keeping with this series, we're picking the minds of one of the greatest comic book aficionados that we, or anyone else for that matter, knows. Now, it's time for... <sighs> Matt's facts. So, Captain America, when he first came out, there was a lot of controversy around him to the point where Timely Comics actually had to have police protection. Oh, wow. They didn't quite understand what was going on. Pearl Harbor hadn't yet happened. So he predates Pearl Harbor? He does indeed predate. Fantastic. Remind me, he's created by, it's Jack Kirby and somebody else, isn't it? Joe Simon. Was the cartoonist. The first issue, it showed Cap punching Hitler in the face, Mm -hmm. which was part of what surprised that there was so much controversy. At the same time, there was a lot of issues due to a rival comic company where they believed the character was stealing from 
another character. And so part of that meant they had to change certain things about Cap, which is why in the second issue, he then ended up with what we all know as the Round Shield. Right, okay. He's gone through a lot. Obviously, he was retired at the end of more or less World War Two. Mm-hmm. Well, in canon. Yes, this is what I wanted to get onto yeah. at some point. Can we talk about the the 1950s Captain America at all? So, Cap had kind of died off into a distant memory by the mid-50s. And they decided mm-hmm. they wanted to see how, he, how he'd work, if people would like him, if he'd come back. And they did a short comic in which you find out that Cap is not Cap. It's an actual Silver Age villain called the Acrobat. And at the end of it, they had a caption saying, this is to see if people would be interested in Cap coming back. And mm-hmm. it drew such incredible enthusiasm that cap did come back in avengers 4 which Mm. was in the 60s now with that they released a retcon but the Mm -hmm. cap that had been going on through the 50s before he went into obscurity was actually a completely different cap it was someone else they'd given us type of super soldier serum too and that the cap we knew and loved who the avengers had found had ended up frozen in ice in the 1940s. Most people would always, when listing who the original Avengers are, they'll always list Cap, despite Mm -hmm. the fact he didn't appear to be there. He was notable, though, Mm -hmm. for leading the Avengers for most of their tenure. Mm -hmm. Shortly after he was brought back, all the original Avengers decided they needed some time off, so they ended up bringing a... Another controversial lineup, which consisted of Quicksilver, Vision, and Scarlet Witch, and Hawkeye. From what I understood, the reason that those characters ended up being such strong mainstays is that they didn't have any of their own uh, individual comics. So Iron Man would sometimes go off and do Invincible Iron Man things, Captain America would go off and do Captain America things, but there wasn't much call for a, a Hawkeye comic book or a sort of Wanda and Pietro comic book. Is that right? That is very much true. They've used Cap quite a lot over the years to address political issues To be as well, to be fair. Mm-hmm. At the time of crea- when he was created, quite a few people have since compared the fact of Cap's creation, because it was created by Jewish creators. Mm-hmm. They've compared it to how a Jewish elder would create a golem. That's fascinating. So that's one thing where it's always come across. Mm-hmm. You look at the Cap comics and there's always a bit of a, a link to current events. Mm-hmm. One of the most notable was when Cap decided he was no longer going to be Captain America. He wasn't going to work for the government. He would become the Nomad. Remind me, Nomad is around, it's in the 70s, isn't it? Yes, I believe to the mid to late 70s. Yeah, that that's consistent because this is one of those areas where it, you almost start to see the effect that Watergate had on comics. We had lots of sort of paranoid sort of conspiracy films in, in that sort of time. When you've got a character so closely associated with a country, it makes things very difficult, doesn't it? Definitely. Originally, they wanted to call him Super American before they realised there's too many supers out there. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. use a cap. So he's always been used in that slightly political way mm-hmm. to drive a point of, look, this is bad, this is good. Yeah. This is what we should go for. And that's why, at times, they've even had Steve 
turning against the government, yeah. the society. The, one of the biggest notable examples of that was Civil War. Yes. I think this is one of the things that I was, I was thinking about. Do you remember when we were watching Civil War, it was really... It was a really stressful film to watch because you knew in the comics that Cap had died right at the end of Civil War. And part of that had come down to the the fan reaction because right-wing fans wanted him sort of fighting off insurgents in Iraq and sort of left-wing fans wanted him giving speeches about freedom on the steps of Capitol Hill, you know? So his status and his identity has always made him quite a complicated character. Oh, definitely. In Civil War, whether you were Team Cap, Team Iron Man, both sides were in the right. It's yeah. just one was following, understood that the law was the law and were following it, and the other was going, it might be the law, but some laws are wrong. Yeah. It was a wonderfully morally grey, the whole thing. Yeah. And you didn't often see that. And at the end, to show that, you see Cap gunned down on the Capitol steps. Mm. And it was really interesting to see that happen because there's always the comic book rules of if they die off panel, they didn't really die. Mm -hmm. But it was very final. And Cap then didn't return for quite a few years. It wasn't until after Secret Invasion that Cap Mm -hmm. came back, where it was also revealed that he'd not actually died. (laughs) He'd been shot by Sharon Carter and time-displaced throughout time i mean i remember that time you got accidentally shot by your on-off girlfriend and then was displaced through time honestly it is a an occupational hazard for us listen matt i could talk to you about this forever thank you so much for taking the time to us and we will see you next episode indeed look forward to it thank you for having me so julia those were matt's facts what did you think you would never think now that Captain America would be a controversial figure in any point, really. But to hear that he's had such a turbulent beginning was was really interesting. Now, Julia, we've just learned pretty much everything there is to know about Captain America and his comic book roots. But let's not forget that this film is set exclusively in a heightened, but still pretty recognisable World War Two. So I thought, who could possibly help us dig into the minutiae of the Second World War to find out what in this film is made up and what is closer in reality than it has any right to be. So there was only one person I could possibly choose. I'll let him introduce himself. Hi there, my name's Tim Cloak and I'm a history teacher currently living down in Devon. Uh, I did my degree at university in modern contemporary history, so hopefully I'm qualified to comment on this particular topic. Tim, thank you so much and welcome back to the God in Film podcast. It's been it's an absolute joy to have you back. With Captain America, we know the comic book side of things. With you, because of your historical background, what I wanted to do was take a slightly different angle on this and sure. sort of treat Steve Rogers as if he was a historical figure and mm-hmm. try to, if we treat the film First Avenger like it's a, a primary source... And if we, Which I do. <laughs> naturally. <laughs> if we had to if we had to sort of see think about based on what we see in the film, what sure. theatres of war do you think Steve Rogers would have served in? 
I think most likely, given the Allies' strategy to want to deal with Germany first before Japan, he most likely would have um, would have been in the European theatre, which is actually what he's shown in the film yeah. uh, anyway. So that would make sense to me. There's nothing to say that he wouldn't have been in the Pacific. Something I recall from the film is in the kind of propaganda shorts that he does beforehand, there's some scenes which are quite obviously set in the Pacific with the island hopping campaign. Um, but I, I think that kind of fits into not only the story world of the film itself, but also in the idea of the original Captain America of the comics of him being a propaganda figure who could, in theory, serve anywhere. He represents the American uh, war effort and uh, the American military might in its entirety. But because of the idea of using a super soldier to try and deal with um, what was viewed to be the most urgent threat, Nazi Germany, mm. I think he would have been used at the European theatre first. So I'm just, I'm just trying to uh, get it through in my head. It never states it explicitly in the film, but it's commonly believed that he goes into the ice in 1945... Yeah, but so how much how much conflict were we still dealing with in the European theatre by 1945? Historians would say that really the writing is on the wall for Germany from 1943 onwards. Um, oh, really? That early? A, yeah, oh, without without a doubt. I mean, Germany's very much on the back foot and it's losing from that point. Oh, it's still going to get some real big punches in. Mm -hmm. It's still going to do a huge amount of damage. There's a lot of suffering that's still going to go on on both sides. Um, but actually, yeah, there's a really good argument to show uh, that Germany's already losing by that point. If you want a, some backup to that, mm -hmm. you just have to look at the, the, the Nazi government them, themselves. Um, Nazi Germany, unlike the other powers, only fully mobilises for war from 1943 onwards. Uh, the propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels, gave a speech uh, called the Total War Speech, in which uh, the Nazi government finally... Um, encouraged the whole German population to get behind the war effort, saying that this is a total war and we will need to put all of our energies behind it. The reasons for that, there's likely two big reasons. One uh, is that they are relying quite a lot on enslaved labour, mm -hmm. which the Allies had not been doing. Is that like the, the slave labour that they used on the, on the rocket programme that they had? Yeah, so with the rocket programme, if you're thinking about the, uh, the V weapons mm -hmm. uh, with the use of particularly Jewish slave labour um, by Werner von Braun, who later, von of course, as we know, became involved in uh, the Apollo programme. Uh, yeah, that to a certain extent, but also a huge amount of uh, prisoners of war, particularly from the Eastern Front, uh, but also... It's difficult to say whether it's forced labour or migrant labour from some of the occupied countries, including France, Poland, you name it. Mm -hmm. So they, the, the, the German government had those resources to draw from, if you like, Gosh. if we're going to talk in really like cold terms about yeah. it, which the Allies didn't. Another thing I think is actually a certain amount of propaganda and denial on the part of um, the Nazi government, where they didn't really want to admit to their people that they were in a fight for their national survival. Um, it didn't suit the Nazi propaganda vision of saying, well, we are establishing a new Germany and that this will be a short war, but a brutal war. Um, and many of the German people have kind of believed that after their shocking victories in 1940. Believe me, no one was more surprised by those victories than the German government themselves. <laughs> not that they would let on. <laughs> So, yeah, I, th I think when we look at um, the, the situation of the, the military complex, the United States is still gearing up in 1943 and is outproducing Germany in many respects. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't expect to be talking about the economics of it, but <laughs> although you find that 1944 is the biggest year of war production for Germany uh, in the, for the entirety of the war, it is too little too late. Um, and their strategy of using some very powerful weapons, which I think is a, a theme we'll come back to when we're talking about the movie, was getting increasingly desperate because, frankly, they didn't have the, the raw materials and the natural resources to support what they needed to do. The Allies did. So, in essence, 
part of the reason that they lose the war is because, at least in the first half, they were trying mm. to make it look easy. Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> that's a, there's a huge overflip. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, 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 but it was various other factors, for example, the French leadership, um, a certain number of mistakes that the Allies made early on, that made those absolutely stunning successes. And very, very few people in Germany expected them to go like that. An awful lot of them, the same as the British and the French, expected it to turn into World War World War One, the, the sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it absolutely did not. Where, where it becomes kind of interesting from the point of view of uh, linking it to the film, if, I, if I'm going to make that link, is when I first saw the film, there was a lot of things that I recognised within it as drawing upon elements of real history, mm-hmm. but very much from the counterfactual what-if side. It's not a, an an element of the Second World War I give an awful lot of time to because quite frankly when you go into sort of like the online message boards and stuff there's a lot of real weirdos out there almost talking to this sense of oh if only the Germans had developed this stuff it's like well no I don't want to be alive in that world um, but if we take some of the kit that you see although I'd have to check my books but I don't think the Nazis ever actually secured the Tesseract I'd have to have a look into that uh, yeah it's not not commonly thought to be the case no it, it, it isn't the huge flying wing bomber at the end that is probably the most iconic machine that's shown in it very very similar in its design to uh, some real german aircraft the the horton 229 which was a flying wing fighter prototype mm-hmm. pretty much the same design but just a lot smaller mm-hmm. that actually did fly uh, so that that was a real design that wasn't just something that was dreamt up out of nowhere but this was something that again that was too little too late the uh, the german air force was keen on getting lots of planes built very quickly so that they had the numbers uh, in order to support a, a ground based campaign but they never focused on building a strategic bomber force like the allies did with you know lancasters and flying fortresses and so forth and by the time they got around to doing that they simply didn't have the resources to do right. it so the what if is you know had the uh, the germans uh, have developed their flying wing technology slightly earlier they developed their jet engine technology slightly earlier and they'd focused on building a long-range strategic bomber which was their kind of dream but it was only ever a pipe dream Mm -hmm. then that sort of stuff might have um might have existed and even those crazy little parasite fighters that come off of that great big flying wing those are based upon a real design it was never built but they yeah it's um i'm going to pronounce this wrong so german speakers i apologize but i believe it's called the the fuckerwolf triebflugel which um was effectively using little rockets or little jet engines on the end of these these wings Mm -hmm. to make something that could take off vertically from factories as a point defense fighter against allied bombing raids something that they investigated they kind of worked out the physics behind it Mm -hmm. but never actually built it and in a way, this kind of gives the lie to the idea of the German technical genius, because there is a certain amount of genius in building a good tank like a Sherman, which I, th- I believe appears in the film at some point, mm-hmm. um, in good enough quantity with great survivability for the crew. Because, hey, you know what? It might actually be an idea to respect the survivability of your people, <laughs> not just the uh, quality of your kit. Um, rather than focusing on a, an increasingly deranged number of Wunderwaffe wonder weapons which were never going to arrive and were never going to save the day mm-hmm. um, because by that point it's almost like German industry is looking for a miracle because frankly all they could ever rely on by that point was a miracle okay I see so let's look at, at Rogers himself then so mm-hmm. obviously uh, he, like me he's uh, he's asthmatic and he and we can see on his on his form, he's got a whole host of other other things wrong with him. By virtue of being signed up to this this particular program, he ends up sort of rising mm. through the ranks quite quickly. He becomes a a captain, which is 
a comparatively junior officer position in the in the army. Yeah. But something interesting happens. He gets to form his own team. And I, I guess the thing I was I was interested in was how realistic is it that a comparatively junior officer would be able to handpick men for his own unit? I mean, I'd sometimes wonder, given when the Captain America character was created, we've got to realise that uh, familiarity with the structure of the army and so forth would be so much better known than it would be today by mm-hmm. the average person on the street. And I, I certainly think that Stan Lee would have known this with his own background. Uh, choosing captain as the rank is a really potentially clever move. I don't think it's accidental. Right. A captain's about a high, as high a rank as you could get in the US Army at that time, whilst he would still personally know virtually all the soldiers under his command. Right, I see. So anything so higher only... than that, you're basically too far into management. To... Yeah. Right, you're, you're talking to your sergeants and saying, all right, who who could, should I choose for this? Mm-hmm. Um and so when we're looking for real examples of being able to handpick a team for a particular mission, uh, when it comes to special forces, yes, actually, you do find these sorts of things going on. Um, the best analogue I could find for it wouldn't be American, though. It would be the formation of the Special Air Service, or the better known, of course, as the SAS. Do you know what? I didn't want to say anything, but that was top of my list. <laughs> so it's good to be thinking along those right lines. Um, these are often people who are rather unconventional in their outlook, um, as Sterling, the leader of the SAS and originator of the SAS wars. They're prepared to be more experimental. Mm-hmm. And I think, crucially, they're the sort of people who can find a place in the forces for someone who would not fit in elsewhere. A, a really good example of that would be Paddy Main, who was um, one of the, the early originators of the SAS. Uh, I mean, the guy was just uncontrollable in any other sort of um, force. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would not have fitted in, in in peacetime particularly well. But if you want someone to literally tear the instrument panels out of German and Italian fighters and kick down doors and say, you're all right, lads, and start machining gun- gunning them, I don't really want to make light of the horror of it yeah, all. But yeah. that is the sort of thing that he did, and he was perfect for it, so he was hand-picked for it. And I think what's really interesting about the books is that I don't think it's just about the hand-picking of those soldiers. It's the multinational, multi-personality mm. nature of it which is such a good analogue for the um, the Allied effort as a whole. And that, I'm sure, is absolutely deliberate and uh, yeah. it, it speaks as a symbol for that effort. That idea of like a, a multinational um, mm. unit, that's how likely would something like that be? Or is that not likely at all? Uh, it's, it's difficult to say. It, with British forces, it's slightly more likely because, of course, that would um, encompass Empire forces as well, who would right. come from all sorts of places. For the Americans, not as easy, quite honestly. But um, where we're looking at things symbolically and actually from a slightly propaganda uh, look, if we think about, just say, one really famous uh, operation like Mm -hmm. D-Day, although each section of that you would have um, Americans largely working on one beach, say Omaha and Mm -hmm. uh, and Utah, then uh, a Canadian-led beach and and British-led beaches, there was an understanding among those Allied soldiers that they had comrades in arms from other nations who were elsewhere who were fighting alongside them. I know it's not a film that you're looking at, at the moment, but that iconic scene at the start of Saving Private Ryan with the uh, the landing craft going onto Omaha Beach and just the horrendous uh, first attack that was there, which is very realistically shown, really, mm-hmm. for, for a film. It's worth bearing in mind that in real life, an awful lot of those landing craft coxswain would, would have been British. Right, okay. There would have been that sort of relationship there. And there was a respect for the specialisations of certain other groups. So there was a certain amount of uh, rivalry as well. But it was so important to the Allied propaganda effort that they were able to highlight how united they were. 
because you scratch the surface, there were definitely divisions. You look at yeah. Patton and Montgomery, the two guys were massive e- egotists who absolutely hated their guts. Yeah. You look at Captain Steve Rogers, he's completely the opposite. Yeah. He's about the dig evidence. He's completely selfless. And he has got those ideals of a soldier um, that they were looking for even before he had the uh, the super soldier serum. 100%. Do you know what? I've just, I'll just add one last thing. By all you're, means, you're, yeah. You're a fan of the rest of history, uh, the rest of this history. I podcast love well, those guys. Yeah. So, making another link to the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Tom Holland, of course, has made mm-hmm. a really good comparison about this. And I'm I'm not unfortunately talking about Spider Man Tom Holland. I'm mm-hmm. talking about the noted historian Tom Holland. One of the things that I think really makes the Captain America story work is its idea that it's what's within us that's really important. Mm-hmm. And if there's ever the the ultimate anti Christian enemy you can't really do much better than the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, not just from the literal anti-religion side of things, but I think that they, they so offend Christian sensibilities. And I'm saying that as an atheist, but someone who's grown up in a Christian society in, in terms of its nature and its morality, that we're, we would look for the individual who can represent the very best among us. And maybe that's exactly what steve rogers does tom holland in his book dominion goes into that really well and perhaps that explains why why the nazis are just so offensive to every every part of our character and every part of our our feelings i suppose awesome listen tim thank you so much thank you for taking the time to talk to us it's just such an absolute treat thanks for having me hey guys it's editing giles here this interview with mr cloak was really enjoyable with incredible amounts of knowledge to the point where I had to be reminded that we're not actually a history podcast. So if you'd like to hear the full interview in all its granular detail, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash God in Film Podcast and sign up to our Bishop Waller Bridge tier to hear it along with additional interviews and special bonus episodes like our God in Music and God in Gaming episodes. And now, if you sign up to our Archbishop Spike League tier, you can hear the next episode on Daredevil a week before everyone else. And now, back to the show. So, Julia, that was Tim Cloak. What did you think? Uh, That was fantastic. And Tim's such an expert on these kind of things. It's so nice to hear someone who knows so much kind of talk about their like passion project. Um, it's so interesting as well to see that the film actually was quite accurate in a way, especially the the point he was making about the big plane at the end, the big bomber mm. plane being grounded in actual designs um, is really, really cool. If you want more Mr. Cloak, you can find him on his YouTube channel at Mr. Cloak History. So that's Cloak, C-L-O-K-E. And if you want to check out some of his historical artwork, because as well as being freakishly knowledgeable, he's an also painfully talented artist. So you can check out. It is. It is. Really is. Thank you. You know. (laughs) So you can check out his historical artwork on Instagram under at Dry Wipe History. Now it's time for (gasps) finding the faith in the film. So as I say, this is what I would call a Messiah movie, and just quickly. How would we categorise a Messiah movie? Well, my my only knowledge, I would say, of a Messiah movie would, of course, be the classic that is Life of Brian. <laughs> he's not the Messiah. Yeah, he's just a, he's very, a very naughty, naughty boy. boy. <laughs> <laughs> so for the way I'm sort of seeing it is a Messiah movie or a TV show, I'd categorise that as a, a story about the battle between good and evil where the hero lays down his or her life to save mankind. Now, we've covered this throughout much of our run so far with characters like Neo, Spock, 
Superman, hell, Buffy, Angel, and Spike could all be said to fall into this trope at some point or other. But Captain America is so obvious, such low-hanging fruit, it really is a wonder we didn't do this in the first season. In fact, this first came to mind when I guessed on Louisa Jane Smith's RE podcast. She got me on as a guest, I talked about Messiah movies, and uh, that's the, that was the, the uh, genesis point from that there. Yeah. Okay. So let's break it down. Steve Rogers is just a, a normal guy from Brooklyn. He's, he's short. He's he's very humble. He's asthmatic. Way. Go on to the <laughs> asthmatics. Representation. We love to see Every, it. Everybody else out there, all you guys living life on the difficult setting, I see you. I'm with you guys. <laughs> and prior to a certain saving money by transforming water into wine incident, almost nobody thought that Jesus was particularly special either, except for... Maybe his mum, and hopefully everybody's mum thinks yeah. they're special. Jesus was a humble carpenter from Nazareth, which is a sort of forgettable backwater town. He's taken over his stepfather's business, and I kind of imagine his time is taken up making tables and chairs, studying the Torah, and dealing with his younger brothers and possibly sisters, you know? Yeah. I imagine it's, from the impression we get, is a big family, and I bet they were all flipping and away. Like, yeah, do you reckon, like, any time you had to go out, Mary would be like, yeah, take your brothers with you, and he'd be like, <laughs> have, do I have to? Yeah, and your sisters as well. And just, <laughs> yeah, that's it always, yeah, well, just take your brother with you. <laughs> I do imagine James, his brother, was like, oh, mum, I don't, mum, I'm a man now, I'm 13. I don't need, I don't need an escort. Please let me just go alone. <laughs> Painfully, his brothers and his, his family, other than his mum, didn't actually believe he was the Messiah until much later on in the process. You know, oh, that's were, interesting. Nobody, like, James later becomes, like, absolute ride-or-die believer in, in Christ. But, like, at the time, not so much. And it must be so hard to believe that somebody's the Messiah when you've seen them, like, stink up the place with, like, a really nasty fart, yeah. you know? Yeah. But anyway, there we go. So <laughs> there's our starting point. And then... If we move on, we come to Steve Rogers. He is recruited by Erskine, who's who sort of overhears him talking. He says he, he doesn't want a perfect soldier, but a good man. And he undergoes like a, the super soldier enhancement with the serum and being bombarded with Vita Rays. And that leads to, well, possibly Julia's sexual awakening as well. Light bulb moment, light bulb moment. That's what the kids are calling it nowadays. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody has to have their equivalent of seeing Gillian Anderson in the X-Files for the first time. So oh, just yeah. one thing, I would have loved to have seen the stretch marks on him, you know, by getting all that yeah, muscle mass so that's quickly. That's interesting, you know? actually. That's something I hadn't even thought about because that would that would happen, surely. You'd at least get some under the arms. You know, I know some some dudes who like sort of got big pretty really quickly and they've got the sort of stretch marks under the arms to show for it. But there we go. Anyway. It's only when he's undergone this that Steve is able to do any of the heroic things that he does. Now, similarly, Jesus is only able to start his miraculous ministry after he's baptized in Matthew chapter 3. So do you know anything about the baptism story? Not a thing. <laughs> okay, all right. So John the Baptist? Uh, I've heard of John the Baptist. Yeah, okay. um, is there a river involved? Or am I? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a river involved. So John the Baptist is like he's like Jesus' hype man, you know? He's like Jesus' warm-up act, you I know? Love that for him. <laughs> that's, that's, that is the first time I've come up with that particular phrase and, and I'm keeping Everybody it. Everybody you know? needs a hype man. It doesn't matter if you're the son of God or if you're just, you know, 
<laughs> the guy down the street. You need a hype man. Everybody yeah. has to have their hype man, you know? So he's there screaming, yo, 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 yo. Look, you guys need to get yourselves ready because there is one dude who is coming. He's coming soon. He's so amazing. I'm not even able to, I'm not even good enough to undo his sandals. He's that amazing, you know? <laughs> Is he kind of like the the Jesus's equivalent of, of Bucky almost in that they are? No, I believe it or not, I am getting to a Bucky parallel later on, so just don't jump the oh, gun, you know. Stay tuned, folks. We'll we'll get there. <laughs> so John the Baptist is baptizing people because they all want to get ready. Everybody's everybody's waiting for the Messiah, this prophesied Messiah to come. The the gap between the last book in the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament is about 400 years. So everybody's like, could really do the Messiah now, guys. You know, know, the Romans have been there since like BC, 63 BC. So they're like, can we please just, I need some Messiah to come up and just put everything right here, yeah. you know? kick out the Italians. Like, yeah. So the interesting thing is, obviously, Jesus then comes, and people have been asking, John, like, are you the Messiah? I'm like, no, I'm just a dude. And then uh, Jesus comes. Now, there's some belief that John is actually the cousin of Jesus, but John is like, dude, you're you're the guy. You know, you should be, you should be baptizing me. And she's like, look, 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 just please, can we just do the thing? So... <laughs> I find it weird that even the son of God, who has that much power to him and that much sort of, mm. well, for no better phrase, status, is still like, no, I've got to be baptized. I've got to be anointed into doing this thing, you know? So I always yeah. thought that was, that was interesting. Now, the next thing that I wanted to pick out was picking his own team. After Steve Rogers liberates all the POWs once he's actually made it to, into sort of yeah. the European theatre war, about midway through the film, Steve Rogers picks his own team, including Bucky, Dum Dum Dugan, and I can't remember the rest. I don't suppose you can remember the name of the group. Uh, the Howling Commandos. The Howling Commandos. Well done. Now, interestingly, The Howling Commandos was a World War II comic published in 1963. So again, proper Silver Age stuff. But the big difference, they're led. They're not led by Captain America. They're led by one Sergeant Nicholas Joseph Fury. But uh, that's, uh, that's a story for another time. So similarly, Jesus picks, handpicks his own team. Now... Do you know the difference between an apostle and a disciple? If I were to take a guess, a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus, but an uh-huh. apostle might be somebody who maybe records or is almost like a... Uh, a disciple is simply somebody who's a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. The word is still used in Christian circles today. Like if you're taking somebody under your wing and you're mentoring them in their faith, then you're often said to be discipling them. It's something we do with like new Christians or young Christians, that sort of stuff. And really, it just involves going for a coffee a lot. You know, that tends that to be... That sounds good. That yeah. sounds really nice. For me, I felt like end of last year that my faith was kind of not stagnating, but, you know, I've been a Christian for 20, 25 years. And you're like, okay, I kind of got, got to this bit. And how do I... Like how a do plateau I get to almost. Yeah, a you sort bit, of leveled you know? out, yeah. So I found... A guy called Nick Matthews, who he's just as geeky as me. He, like he's got a big sort of Silver Surfer attacking Thor poster Amazing. in his room, and he's he's who I want to be if I grow up. Yeah. And I was like, "Will you disciple me?" You know, because I can't. You know, it was a little bit of a oopie doo. I want to be like you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. 
so yeah we're, we like we've, we've done that we've gone and, uh, and met for lunch and hopefully gonna be done anyway so that's a disciple mm-hmm. now an apostle was one of the 12 men that jesus picked as his closest followers his uh, senior leadership team if you like yeah why do you think he chooses 12 uh i would assume is 12 a significant number in 12 is a significant number christian yeah. theology um, not Christian theology, well, a bit of Christian theology, well, but actually more Jewish, Jewish theology. Yeah. There are 12 tribes of twelve tribes of Israel. I don't know why I held up one hand. <laughs> to show you 12, I'd have to take my socks off. <laughs> um, there's the, the three kind of patriarchs, like Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob, who changes his name to Israel. Did you ever see Joseph in his technical dream coat? I have seen Joseph so many times. I had the, the the cassette tape of the original London Palladium mm-hmm. cast recording with Jason Donovan that I used to... I'm sorry, nice. Mum. I, I must have driven you insane because I used to listen to it on repeat. I knew every yeah. single word. To this day, I still know every single colour in Joseph's coat. Okay, all right. So can you remember his brothers? So you have Reuben. Let me, let's me let kick it off. Okay. Reuben so was the eldest, the eldest of the of children, the children of, Israel. of Israel. With Simeon, with Simeon and, and Levi, Levi the, next the next in line. line. Naphtali and Issachar with Asher and Dan. And Dan. Zebulun, Zebulun and Gad took the turtle, turtle to nine. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob and sons. Benjamin, Benjamin and, Judah, and Judah, which leaves, which leaves only, only one. one. Jacob, then, Jacob and sons. Yeah. Joseph, Joseph Jacob's, Jacob's favourite son. Honestly, the amount that like musicals have for helping yeah. us hold theological facts in our head is really mm-hmm. quite important so yeah it has a symbolic significance and if you imagine it like jesus pr you know it's like hey yeah 12 tribes of israel i should pick 12 guys you know i've been thinking about like what criteria he might use because have you heard of mary magdalene i have heard of mary magdalene do you know anything about her i know a little bit about her i know that she was quite um close to jesus yeah she washed his feet i believe before yeah. or for the crucifixion, but she also kind of prepared his body to go into the tomb after the crucifixion, I believe. Yeah, um, so that bit's that bit's definitely right. She sort of she definitely turns up to yeah to wash his body and the rest of it. The problem is right, Mary, super popular name in sort of first century Israel. Mm. Basically, like one in four women are yeah. called Mary or Mariam or Miriam or some derivation of it, yeah. you know? And there's been a little bit of conflation because Mary, she was a big deal. You know, she was a true believer. She had a good head on her shoulders. Again, proper ride or die. She's the one that tells the apostles that Jesus has risen from there. There's a yeah. there's a good phrase, like, if it wasn't for women preachers, we wouldn't actually know about the resurrection, <laughs> you know? So I, I was asking myself, like, why, why wasn't she an apostle? And I was thinking, well, mm. this could be for several reasons. So she has demons cast out of her, which if we took that as, like, literally true, she'd have a, a, a lot mm. of recovery to do. But if we placed a, a modern lens on that, yeah. we could say that she was still recovering from severe mental health problems. So that might make her quite vulnerable, possibly, mm. and you might not want to put her out in front of stuff. Also, whilst being a woman wouldn't be a barrier to Jesus, it certainly would be a barrier in the first century as well. Yeah. It's, it's super hard to tell people about Jesus if people are already telling you to shut up because you dared to speak whilst having ovaries, you know? Yes, yeah. He's got to tell the world about him. He's got three years to do it. Yeah. He, he just needs the people who can get into the room. Or the other option is that the apostles get picked in in Luke 6. Yeah. But Mary Magdalene doesn't show up until chapter 8. So maybe he just already... Filled yeah. all the spots. You she's know, a bit late to the party, along, you know? bless her, you know. 
just possibly. <laughs> and this last bit is a bit of a stretch, but you could say that they both lose a follower along the way. Well, they both definitely lose a follower along the way. Captain America loses Bucky and Jesus loses Judas. Yeah. Now, you could argue that both betray their leader, but even then I have to admit that stretching the metaphor a bit to, to breaking point. Mm. I've been thinking about like, have you got any idea why Jesus might have chosen these dudes? To tell the truth, no. When Steve obviously puts together his group, mm-hmm. I imagine he would have maybe a person who's good at frontline, a person who's really good at strategizing, a person you, you've always got to have your munitions expert in a group. In every film, there's always they're always a little bit crazy, but you have your your, your munitions expert. You've always got to have somebody who's who's an expert at something, and I imagine Jesus would want the people to represent him to also kind of represent the aspects of him at their Mm. fullest i think that there's some truth to that munitions expert stuff aside but i've actually got a slightly different idea because there's like i say there's loads of people who want to follow him Mm. he says to peter like come follow me and peter does now there's a a german theologian friedrich justus necht who i think is writing around sort of end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century something like that he says why did our lord jesus christ choose for this stupendous office 12 ignorant men of a low station in life (laughs) and of no importance in the eyes of the world he answers it was to show to the world that this that the maintenance and spread of the church and her doctrine were not due to human wisdom and learning but solely to his grace and protection the foolish things of the world have got hath god chosen that he may confound the wise and the weak things of the world god hath chosen that he may confound the strong so basically imagine it a bit like a pr exercise yeah jesus isn't saying look you have to be impressive or lofty or this or that you just have to want to come along for the ride do you know what i mean yeah you know? i think that that's often not a barrier per se but often people have this idea that to to be a disciple or an apostle you have to be the pinnacle when you can yeah. just be yourself 100%. Um, which i think is really lovely actually and that's something that i've learned right now in this moment which is also lovely i love learning new things if i could unpick anything it would be that this idea that being a christian makes you good people get this prejudice and, you know i'm not good enough for this or the, the constant joke i hear about oh i couldn't go into church i'd burn up I'm like dude not being funny but we've done some stuff do you know what i mean we, mm. we're not we're not perfect we're not we're not anything the other thing i'm thinking is jesus finds peter and and a few of the others they're fishermen right and they he finds them near the on the on the shores of the sea of galilee now it's not super easy getting round the area there's no there's no road the buses are just terrible that hasn't changed for you know 2000 years they're still terrible now so i do think part of the reason he chose these guys was that dude's got a boat i need somebody who i need somebody who has their own transport it's like picking a friend who's got a car to be in your team because you need to be able to get there and back i feel that i see that the, the crazy thing obviously is is that peter ends up being they call him the first pope you know he ends up more or less being the leader and he is he goes from being like a flaky you know bit of a dumbass mm. to being absolute ride or die i'm gonna go everywhere i'm gonna tell everybody and like you can literally crucify me i don't care sort of thing yeah. you know yeah so he picks guys who are just just dudes just regular guys just guys being dudes <laughs> yeah and they, and they turn into something amazing. So yeah. uh, last but not least for the Messiah parallels, at the end of the film, spoiler alert, but you know, come on, 
Steve Rogers sacrifices his life to ditch into the sea, the bomber that is going to destroy much of America's eastern cities, only to be resurrected, way, 70 <gasps> years later. You know, in the same way, Jesus knows he has to go to the cross and chooses to do so in order to save the ones he loves, which is, you know, everybody. Obviously, the thing I've said right from the beginning of this is that the metaphor always breaks down sooner or later. So if I had to pick the biggest difference between Jesus and Cap, it wouldn't be nationality, religion, race, muscle mass, or even time period. <laughs> now, Jesus is be... definitely jacked. I feel it, you know? <laughs> really? <laughs> he's a carpenter. He's... He was a yeah. carpenter, right? This is this is my hot take. He's, he definitely got some good muscle definition in the arms, though, if he's, you know, plain in wood and, like, lifting stuff. I, again, I do apologise to the various um, various uh, organisations of Christians out there if I am spouting pure heresy. Um, do you know what? I never thought about it, but that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Anyway, anyway. Sorry. Sorry, I'm everyone. Gonna read, I'm going to read you this section from Mark 12, because shockingly, who would have thought it, but the people that Jesus has the hardest time with is the religious people. So... Not a lot has changed. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. Now, if you imagine the Pharisees, if you imagine like first century mansplainers, you know, yeah. well, actually, I think you'll find that, uh, yo. These mm -hmm. are those kind of dudes, you know? They're always looking to catch him out. They're always looking for something that will get him in trouble with his, either his people or the authorities. Mm -hmm. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So they butted him up, right? Yeah. You're so great. You're this, you're that. Then they say, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And Gilesian head canon at this point says, Jesus goes, and does, <laughs> you know, like absolute face palms. Yeah. Says to them, why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, you know, like a coin, and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So Jesus has form when it comes to walking a real rhetorical tightrope. You know, he's really good at sort of not getting himself in traps, basically, and yeah. being able to avoid that, you know. So honestly, at this point, Israel has been under the yoke of the Roman army for like about 90 years at this point. The Jewish people have been promised the Old Testament of Messiah, who they think is going to free them from oppression, which in their heads is like freedom from the Romans. Now, there are yeah. loads of dudes at this time appointed to be the Messiah and want to lead an uprising against the Romans. I think some of them were called zealots. So Jesus comes along and not only does he not want to kill all the Romans, he also wants you to pay your damn taxes as well, mm -hmm. you know? Pay pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. To no one in particular. <laughs> to to, <coughs> to, to no one in particular. Pay yeah. yo taxes. That's you what know? Jesus would want. <laughs> like literally, yeah, you know. Now I guarantee you there would be no shortage of first century Jews who, when they thought of the Messiah, they were thinking of somebody closer to Captain America than they were of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So those are my Messiah parallels. And there's just one last thing I wanted to talk about. We're not going to spend too long about it, but we were well, we'll mention it. So in terms of moral codes, what is the big difference 
between Batman and Captain America? That's an interesting question because I think you could look at both of them as, as vigilantes. Batman tends to be framed in a much darker, much grittier manner. Yeah. Um, Do you know what? All of that is absolutely true, and I, I couldn't agree more, but it's not quite what I'm looking for. The big yeah. difference is... <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Batman has one rule, don't kill. Yes. He, he refuses to kill people. He won't use a gun, and he, he won't kill people. Captain America will absolutely categorically mm. kill people if he has and to, you know? Now that when you mention that- it, because when I first, because I hadn't watched the first Avenger for a little while, um, yeah. and obviously it having just come off like Infinity War and Endgame and sort of mm-hmm. modern Cap, it took me back a little bit when he's running around with pistols and submachine guns and, yeah. and actually using weapons and he's not just frisbeeing and knocking people out and making them fall over. I was quite jarred almost to see him with a yeah. gun. Seeing him shooting with a pistol does yeah. really take you back. And like, straight up, he is a soldier. Mm. You literally have to do that. Do you know what I mean? Unless you're, yeah. unless you're Desmond Doss in Hacksaw Ridge, <laughs> you're going to have to hurt some people. Which yeah. is a quandary because Rogers is ostensibly, or at least nominally, a Christian. There's that brilliant line in, uh, in Avengers, there's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Yep. Now, yeah, this sounds ridiculous considering how many of us there are on the planet, but Christians kind of underrepresented in the superhero genre. I think there are two Christians in the MCU, so there are there are the same number of people with the title Ant Man as there are Christians. <laughs> <laughs> there are the same number of people who are the Wasp. There are the same number of people who are a Hawkeye. You know, There's, yeah. it's Captain America, Daredevil, and that's pretty much it. I've been thinking, like I say, about the about can somebody who believes in God go to war because thou shalt not kill, or mm. the more modern translation, don't kill. There's no grey area there. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it's you know? a, it's very clear in in what it very, what it's saying. Super clear. Not a lot of wiggle room there. But not everybody else is 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 applying those rules, and and we have had wars since forever. Right up until the to the modern day, it reminded me of something that Natalie said in our Hacksaw Ridge episode. She was talking about: Have you heard of just war theory? Yeah, as in oh, something oh, that is just. Yes, um, the idea it. that if a war has a good purpose, so for example, uh, if it's I don't know liberating an oppressed peoples, mm-hmm. if there is a a good reason to go to war, not they have oil that we like or yeah. we don't like their politics that's not just um in my humble opinion yeah so this uh, the just war criteria comes from thomas aquinas or tommy a to his mates oh, uh, tommy a he's a monk and theologian in the 13th century and he's a absolutely writes tons of stuff about about christianity and like he's basically like a christian writer and philosopher and he's one of the first period people to try and codify the criteria for war for war and his criteria as he said the first is that war must have a just cause so for example to prevent invasion hostile by hostile force or self-defense and war can't be justified if the aims are to to acquire wealth or power or like you said oil Secondly, a war can only be declared by a proper authority. So uh, it has to be a government or a ruler of a nation is the only person who can declare a war, which means I can't at this time declare war on Stockport. But Stockport. That's so annoying. Don't you hate that? I am coming for you, Stockport. You better watch your step. Watch your back, Stockport. Watch your step. 
Yeah. I don't know what you did yeah. to Giles to make him hate you like this, but you better watch it back. <laughs> oh, Stockport knows what it did. Yeah, you know what you Stockport did. Stockport knows what it did. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> the aim of the war must be to promote good or avoid evil with the aim of restoring peace and justice after the war is over. So later on, people had some more criteria about it being, it has to be like a last resort and it should be like proportionate only using like a minimal level of force and only against like legitimate military targets. And by that point, we're into like the Geneva Convention and yeah. that sort of stuff, you know? So in your mind, does the Second World War meet this criteria? I think from what I what I know about the Second World War and often what kind of the narrative that gets taught when you're okay. at school, the idea that Germany invaded Poland unprovoked um, and that we and the other allied nations kind of swooped in um, to to prevent that from happening and to prevent Germany from I say Germany, I mean Hitler really yeah. um, from conquering other countries and stopping the atrocities that he was committing. Um, when you look at it from that perspective, I would say so. And there's also, uh, at least to my mind, us getting involved in the war was more because a uh, self not a self defense per se, but when Hitler was continuing through Europe he wasn't going to stop yeah. and it wasn't necessarily to step in to valiantly defend Poland but more to repel because he was probably going to come for us next um there's less of a heroic intervention narrative there and more of a self-preservation one in my humble opinion for me I think the heroic and the self-preservation can can stand side by side mm. fairly confidently yes obviously we had skin in the game but the people in poland don't particularly care whether what reasons we're, we're fighting to liberate yes. them just as long as we liberate them do you know yeah, what i mean exactly yeah the nazis oh yeah you know when you think yeah. you know everything there is to know about how much these guys were malignantly reprehensibly evil mm -hmm. and then you found out that at at one point, there was one concentration camp that was solely for women because they were actually being used as sex slaves in yeah. the concentration camps to, to sort of incentivize some workers. I think Himmler or somebody like that insisted that homosexual prisoners go to see them once a week to try to cure them and that sort of stuff. Yeah, just really, or, truly reprehensible stuff. You know, really like, just when I thought you guys couldn't get couldn't any worse. Be, couldn't be any worse. It's one of those things where sometimes you have to appreciate the nuance. And yes. Sometimes yeah, you have to be like, no, you guys need to be stopped. Yeah. It's the, the I don't yeah. like bullies line. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's quite scary. Yeah. And I think this kind of underscores the, the point I'm getting at is that sometimes you, you've got to sort of fight for, for what you believe in. You know, you've got yeah. to hold off from, from violence until it's the, like, absolutely categorically the last choice and it's, a, and it's in self-defense. But sometimes you do have to fight back, you know? Yeah. The idea that, and this sort of comes out a little bit with how Cap behaves in civil war, is that just because something is legal uh, or is the law doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct and it's right yeah especially when laws can be changed yeah you know 100 200 years ago slavery was legal and just because it's the law doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct mm. um and the idea that sometimes you might have to subvert the law or go against the laws of a kingdom to do the right thing and cap's never afraid to do that 
100%, 100%. Listen, we could have an entire episode mm. about the about Captain America Civil War, but I've deliberately avoided that oh. one because there is there is there's, so there's not, juicy. Not, it's so juicy. There's not so as much juicy. God stuff in there that I can think of, but oh, flipping heck, there's so much. I good. could. Anyway, yeah. that, that wraps up our, our finding the faith in the film section. So we have a review from our good friend Cat Bullock. Woo! She says, I blimmin' loved this pod. The dulcet tones of Giles and Phil, as well as the special guests, are fabulous. It's genuinely so interesting to hear about some of the best love media interlinked with the themes and debate of religion. More, please. And if you do want more, Kat is actually part of our God in Gaming episode that you can hear on our Patreon page. If you sign up to that, I'll just straight up love you forever. That's just the way it is. Julia, have you had a good time? I've had a lovely time. Um, I will again, for one last time, apologise for the grave amounts of heresy I've committed. Um, <laughs> but in doing so, I've learned a lot. And uh, and it's, it's like I say, it's always good to learn something new. Do you know what? It has been so much fun having you on the podcast. Uh, you can come back whenever you want. It's been, you've been such a joy. Oh, thank you. Awesome. All right, ladies and gents, we will see you next week for our next episode, which is... Daredevil. Ooh. All right. In the meantime, see you soon. Bye. Gordon Films hosted and created by Giles Goff. That's me, you guys. Mixing and editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Minica. And Nick Matthews. Gordon Films is a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case, let us know by writing your review on A4, sealing it in a manila envelope, placing it in a watertight container and then burying it in the Arctic. When it gets unearthed in about 70 years time, we'll be sure to take your thoughts into consideration.